Episode 7 How to Invade Africa In last week's episode, we finally got into the First Punic War and covered the first few years of it, from the invasion of Sicily by the Romans to the conclusion of the Siege of Agrigentum. Now, the Romans are full of confidence and decide to invade Africa, but to do so, they will need a navy. We've already said that the Romans did not like being on the sea. They thought that it was unnatural. So they let their allies do that kind of work for them in the past. They were relying on Hiero and their other Sicilian allies for supplies during the war because they couldn't supply themselves because they did not have a navy. But this all changed now. Rome would build a navy. 100 quinqueremes and 20 triremes were to be built. A trireme was a ship with three oarsmen per column of rowers, and had for a long time been the standard warship in the Mediterranean, since the 7th century BC in fact. Gradually, over the course of time, this dominance waned, and during the 4th century, heavier ships began to dominate, such as the quadrireme, with its four oarsmen per column, and the quinqueremes, with its five. There is considerable debate over what the three in trireme and the five in quinqueremes is referring to. With the Roman dominance of the Mediterranean that came after the Battle of Actium, naval warfare fell out of use, and knowledge of the construction of these ships completely disappeared. By the 5th century AD, there was debate among scholars over how a quadrireme and other such ships actually worked. Today, some theorise that the number refers to the number of rows of oars on each ship. Some, myself included, think it refers to the number of oarsmen in each column, while others think it refers to the number of oarsmen per oar. I'm going to go with the number of oarsmen in each column, because that seems to make the most sense, given some of the size of some of these ships. Now, back to the quinqueremes. In the eastern Mediterranean, quinqueremes fell out of fashion to even larger ships. Ptolemy IV of Egypt, who reigned in the late 3rd century BC, had a 40 oarsmen per column warship called the Tessara Conteres. This monstrosity needed 4,000 oarsmen, It stood at 128 metres long and up to 24 metres above sea level and could carry almost 3,000 marines. It is unsure whether the Tessera Contreras was ever actually used in battle but it could well have been the largest man-powered machine ever constructed. Anyway, in the west, the Quinqueremes remained the standard in the Carthaginian fleet. The Quinqueremes was about 45 metres long, with its deck 3 metres above sea level. It was 5 metres wide at the waterline. While the Quinqueremes was the standard warship in Carthage, it had yet to be constructed in Italy. Roman shipwrights had no experience for things. This is a distinct disadvantage if you are trying to construct 100 of the blasted things. They did, though, have one piece of luck. 
when they crossed over to Misana, they had no fleet at all. Not even one galley. They had to borrow a mixture of triremes and pentaconters from their allies. As the Carthaginians tried to stop the Romans crossing, a ship got a bit over-eager and ran aground. The Romans used this ship as a model on which they based their entire navy. And so, work began. The ships were built while the rowers trained on the beaches. They learned how to row and move their bodies in time. Soon enough, the ships were finished and launched. They were placed under the command of the consul Gnaeus Cornelius Scipio. I believe this is the first Scipio we've bumped into, but it most assuredly will not be our last. Scipio ordered the captains to take the fleet to the Straits of Masana as soon as it was ready, while he made his own way to Masana to get the materials the fleet desperately needed. While en route, there was an opportunity to capture the town of Lipara, a town on the island of Lipara, which is in the Aeolian group, which was at the time controlled by Carthage. Scipio anchored the fleet just off the town with, in the words of Polybius, more haste than prudence. At this point, news of Scipio's arrival reached Hannibal at Panormus. You remember Hannibal, the general who escaped from Agrigensum? Hannibal sent Budes, a Carthaginian senator, to Lipara, with twenty ships. Budes sailed there at night, and captured Scipio in the harbour. The Roman crews abandoned the ships at daybreak, and fled for the shore. Scipio was unable to do anything, through a mixture of panic, and that he really was helpless. Well, he was able to do something, he surrendered. The fleet and Scipio were captured. Hannibal does not seem to have learned anything from his capture of Scipio, though, and nearly made the same mistake a short while later. He heard the Roman fleet was nearby, and so he advanced with fifty ships to observe them. He advanced a bit too rashly, and soon found himself facing the well-organised Roman fleet. Hannibal was able to extract himself from the situation, but he lost most of his ships. The Roman fleet made its way to Messana to receive word that Scipio had been captured. This word was then immediately passed on to the other consul of the year 260 BC, and the commander of the land forces in Sicily, Gaius Duilius. After finding out that the enemy was nearby, they began to prepare for action. They would be at a distinct disadvantage, were it not for their secret weapon. Corvus. Corvus is Latin for raven or crow. The Corvus was a pole 24 feet high on the prow of the ship. Attached to this pole was a gangway with a large spike on the end, all connected with a pulley system. A diagram can be found on the website. When the ship approached another ship, the gangway could be dropped and Roman soldiers could cross to the enemy ship and fight a land battle on the sea. Gaius Duilius gave command of the land forces to the military tribunes, and took command of the fleet. 
once he heard the Carthaginians, under the command of Hannibal, were attacking Mylae, the modern Milazzo, located about 25 miles west of the northeastern tip of Sicily. Once the 130 Carthaginian ships saw the Roman fleet, they immediately attacked. Confident they would crush the Romans, now they had finally ventured into the natural Carthaginian element. They were so overconfident that they neglected to sail in formation. A costly mistake. As the two forces grew closer, the Carthaginians noticed the Corwai, and were baffled by them. But they still carried on, confident they were about to annihilate their enemy. As soon as they were in range of the Corwai, the gangways were lowered. The Carthaginians began to realise the mess they were in. The first 30 ships that engaged the Romans were captured, including Hannibal's flagship, which had once belonged to Pyrrhus. Hannibal was able to escape. The rest of the Carthaginians advanced, keen to engage the Romans, but they quickly realised what the Corwai were doing, and so veered off to the sides. If they couldn't engage the Romans frontally, they would ram them broadside, or from astern. The Romans were prepared for this, and so rotated the corway around to the sides, and then lowered the gangways. Unnerved, the remaining Carthaginians fled, having lost 50 ships in all. That is how, with almost no naval experience whatsoever, Rome won her first major sea battle. The Romans made good of their advantage by raising the siege of Segesta, and on their way back they stormed the city of Marcella. Meanwhile, Hamilcar, the Carthaginian general who had replaced Hanno as commander of the Carthaginian land forces after the fall of Agrigentum, was based at Panormus, and heard that the Romans were quarrelling with their allies about who should receive the spoils of the Roman victory at sea. Hamilcar attacked the allies, and killed about 4,000. Meanwhile, Hannibal fled, with the remnants of the Carthaginian fleet, to Carthage, before receiving reinforcements at Sardinia. Hannibal was soon blockaded by the Romans in one of the island's ports, and lost many ships. His men grew tired with his constant failures. He was arrested and crucified by his own men. The next year, 259, saw no important successes for the Romans. The next year, 258 BC, saw the arrival of two new consuls, Aulus Attilius and Gaius Sulpicius. They took the offensive against Panormus, but made no progress. Instead, they took Hippana, Maitistratum, Camaria, Enna, as well as a number of other Carthaginian fortresses, before laying siege to Lipara. 257 came around, and there was the annual changing of command for the Romans. This year, in charge of the fleet, was Gaius Attilius Regulus. Regulus was at Tyndaris, 15 miles west of Mylae, when the Carthaginian fleet was sighted, not holding formation, so Regulus pounced. He attacked with an advanced squadron, but he moved too quickly and was soon isolated. 
The Carthaginians attacked the advance squadron. They sank nine ships and almost captured the consul. But then the rest of the Roman fleet arrived and saved the day. They sunk eight ships and captured ten before the Carthaginians fled to the Liparian Islands. After this, the two forces considered themselves equally matched in naval warfare. They both decided if they wanted to master the seas, they would need a stronger fleet. And so they made a stronger fleet. In 256, the 330 strong Roman fleet met the 350 strong Carthaginian fleet at Economus, 20 miles east of Agrigentum. Those are the numbers Polybius gives us, but always be wary of large numbers given in ancient battles. Modern estimates put the Roman fleet at 230 and the Carthaginians at 200. The Romans, under the command of Marcus Atilius Regulus, brother or cousin of the consul of the previous year, and Lucius Manlius, were finally launching their long-awaited invasion of Africa. The Carthaginians were trying to prevent this. The Carthaginians knew better than anyone else how vulnerable Carthage was to attack. Once an invader landed ashore in Africa, the native population would surrender. This could not happen. The Romans knew that one of two scenarios would happen. A grand sea battle or an invasion. And so they prepared for both eventualities. They took what modern scholars estimate to be 18,000 hand-picked troops. These were divided into four divisions. The first called the First Legion, or the First Squadron. The second, the Second Legion, or the Second Squadron, etc. The fourth had another nickname, though. The Triarii. The name being borrowed from the land forces. The Carthaginians had no plans about invading Italy or Sicily, and so had no need to bring troops. Even without Carthaginian marines, this was a huge encounter. The two main difficulties for Rome would be having to cross the open sea, and the superior speed of their Carthaginian opponents. To try and solve these problems, they needed a formation that would keep their force together, and be difficult to attack. Regulus and Manlius, in the two flagships, would be placed at the head of the convoy. Either side of these would be two lines of ships, forming a wedge, with the third line behind them forming a triangle formation. The first two squadrons formed the two sides forming the wedge, while the third formed the base of the triangle and pulled the horse transports. Behind these were placed the fourth squadron the Triarii. The Carthaginian commanders prepared their men for battle, by pointing out the consequences of the battle. Victory meant the next battle would be for Sicily. Defeat would be followed by the battle for their homes in Africa. The troops prepared for battle in a fighting mood. The Carthaginians reacted to the Roman formation, by forming a straight line of their ships, on either wing, the line became diagonal, advancing forward. It was clear the Carthaginian intention was to outflank the Romans. 
Hanno commanded the Carthaginian right wing, while Hamilcar commanded the left. It was 256 BC. Battle was imminent. The Romans saw that the great length of the Carthaginian battle line meant that they must be thinly spread. They thus decided to punch through the Carthaginian censor. The Carthaginians scattered, hoping that the Roman formation would break up. It did. While the first two squadrons chased after the Carthaginians, the third squadron, which was slowed due to dragging the horse transports, fell back. The Triarii stayed with the third squadron, as they were the reserves. When the Carthaginians felt that the first two squadrons had been lured a considerable enough distance away, they swung around and attacked their pursuers. The battle was fierce. The Carthaginians had superior manoeuvrability, and were trying to ram the Roman ships, while the Romans used the corps whenever the Carthaginians ventured close enough, and it became a battle of strength. Meanwhile, on the Carthaginian right, while the Romans pursued the Carthaginian censor, Hanno kept his distance, eventually pouncing on the Triarii, while Hamilcar abandoned his formation and made for the Roman third squadron, who promptly removed the tow cables. The battle had become three individual conflicts, being fought in isolation. Hamilcar was forced back by the third squadron, and Manlius chased him down, while Regulus went to assist the Triarii, with any ships from the second squadron that were still able to fight. Momentum quickly turned in favour of the Romans, as Regulus began to encircle Hanno. Hanno realised what was happening, and fled. Manlius, by now, was returning, and saw the Carthaginians pressing the Roman 3rd Squadron against the rocks on the Carthaginian left. It was custom for fleets to hug the coast, and so naval battles were usually fought by the coast. A decisive victory meant forcing the enemy against the rocks. This shows you the trouble that the Roman 3rd Squadron was in. Manlius and Regulus raced the rescue of the 3rd Squadron, and surrounded the Carthaginians, and their fifty ships were captured. Overall, the Romans lost twenty-four ships, and the Carthaginians more than thirty. No Roman ships with its crew were captured, while sixty-four Carthaginian ships were. The Romans had won. They repaired the captured ships, while tending to their own. A squadron was sent ahead, and made a beachhead on the eastern tip of the Gulf of Carthage. The rest of the fleet joined them at Aspis. And that's, my friends, is how you launch an invasion of Africa. If you like the show, why not check us out online at thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com Find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash the history of pod. Subscribe to us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash the history of podcast. If you have any questions about anything, send me a message at the history of podcast at gmail.com. This week I'm going to make for an Amazon recommendation the Fry Chronicles. 
Well, not a history book. It is an autobiography. By Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry is the host of numerous BBC documentaries, cast member of Blackadder, and host of the television show QI. He is the darling of British television. I tremendously enjoyed the autobiography, and I hope you will too. My thanks to Peter John Ross for the music, and thanks to you for listening. Join me next week when we get into what happened during the Roman invasion of Africa.